Hey everyone, this is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Martin Chua, co-founder and CTO of Endless West. Endless West is a San Francisco-based startup using science to create its own blend of spirits. Kind of like what Impossible Foods did for meat, Endless West is doing that for the alcohol industry. For example, their first product, Glyph, is made without any aging or barreling, which means significantly less wood, water, and land use to bring this product from nothing to something. And in the episode, Martin and I will discuss how exactly the production process works. The event that inspired the original idea for Endless West and pushed him to investigate the opportunity further. The many paths forward from creating their own suite of products to partnering with different brands and enabling them to create their own sustainable lab-made alternatives. And finally, Martin's thoughts on the impact potential for the industry and the planet at large for a company like Endless West. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Martin Chua, co-founder and CTO of Endless West. Martin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Martin, I think a great place for us to start is a tagline that I love on your website. It says, all of the spirit, none of the rules. Can you distill that down for us? Sure. And a lot of things that we do, we try to push the boundary of what's possible. And so we, while we take a lot of inspiration from tradition on how different alcohol products are made, whether it's whiskey, wine, or other spirits, we like to express our own creative hand uh, to the process of making these things. And so to the extent that we are breaking rules to create something new, we're also very respectful and take a lot of inspiration from tradition. And so we think the process that we have is fairly unique and something that hasn't been seen before. And, and I think we this contributes to something, to some of brand new experience that recalls what it is to be a whiskey or a wine. I love it. And so let's break it down a bit further. Let's, what is the basics? What is Endless West? Yeah. Endless West is a company that makes molecular wines and spirits. And so we make wines and spirits in a completely different way. Uh, we do it note by note. And so that's understanding, first of all, what makes these products the way they are from a molecular point of view. Once, once we have that down, we then formulate our products from scratch, again, note by note, so ingredient by ingredient, to build it up to a whiskey, a spirit, uh, or a wine that's completely new. Wow. All right. So I am a total noob and it sounds impressive, but I, as the amateur, don't fully understand. So maybe it would be helpful to contrast what you're doing with the status quo. So how are wines and whiskeys currently made today? And then we'll segue back into how exactly you're different. Sure. So if you think about traditional whiskey making, spirits making, there's a process where you have to get the grain, you have to create the mash from the grain, you have to ferment it, right? 
you have to distill it and then you have to mature it uh, and maturing it is, is by aging it whether it's in a barrel or a combination of other things and so that process can take many years as with some of the more premium whiskies it takes up a lot of water it takes up a lot of land and understandably a lot of co2 emissions and for us because we try to understand these products these beverages from a molecular point of view the advantage is that we can have infinitely more control in say in what the components that go into the product are and so this makes it a lot more consistent and a lot easier to produce so what that means for us is if we want to create something that has a similar flavor profile as an 18-year-old whiskey, once we can el elucidate those comp components and what traditionally found in 18-year-old whiskey, we can make that. We can make a similar experience in about a day. And so I think that's one of the main advantages. Then we're talking about for Glyph specifically, 94% less water use, 92% less land use, and 87% less CO2 emissions. So this is based on some internal numbers that we have. And so this there's advantages in, in production and consistency and also the sustainability side of things. So this is all kind of mind-blowing for me, not just you know how exactly it compares on a sustainability front and how you're uh, sourcing materials, but it's not a problem set that I think the average person thinks about. Like, hey, how we make spirits is super interesting, but what if we could actually just scratch everything that we've been doing for centuries and do it this way? So I'd love to rewind to that moment. Was there some event or sequence of events that occurred that inspired this eureka moment of yours? Yeah, yeah. There's one particular event, and I still remember it pretty vividly. This this would have been in late summer or early winter of 20. I would say late summer of 20, 2015. I had some friends over visiting, and I took him on a wine tour around Napa and Sonoma. And the last stop, which was at the Gurgachos Estate, was where the tour guide showed us and, and told me about this one bottle of wine that, that this vineyard had on display. Uh, and it was the Chateau Montelena in 1973. And at that time, it was the first time I'd heard the story of how this bottle of wine won the Judgment of Paris in 1976, which was quite controversial at the time because an American wine beat all the French ones. And the judges couldn't believe what had happened. Some of them allegedly tried to recall their, their 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 rulings but in any case a lot of people point to this moment as one of the most important times for new world and american wines and so with, with the story kind of built up in front of me what else could i do but want to try the product and i quickly found out there's only a handful of these bottles left for, from 1973 and if I were to get my my hands on it, it would cost me upwards of ten, fifteen thousand dollars. And I was a poor startup founder back then, working on another company. And my background's in science. And on the bus ride back home, I thought to myself, if I can look at wines from a purely objective point of view, 
as in what's the ingredient composition of, of these products. For example, what are the proteins, what are the fats, what are the different flavors? And if I could source those individual components from elsewhere in nature, whether that's other fruits or vegetables, or maybe from even from yeast, and put it all back together, would it and could it taste the same as the original? And so that was the eureka moment. That was the first time the idea had been planted in my head. It's Martin. I can't help but think of a meme that's so the average junk person says, all right, I would love some Doritos or some French fries right now. But you give a couple drinks to a scientist and they say, huh, how can we change the world? <laughs> that's amazing. One of the things that it interests me about creating an entirely new version of an age-old thing is what are some of the restrictions? And when you think about how you're creating the whiskey today, I imagine it. there's a different set of scaling challenges. And so maybe I would love to hear on the other side of the coin, compared to traditional processes, how is this approach potentially more challenging or what things still need to be solved to scale Endless West such that the products you're making become the new default? So I think there's multiple challenges on multiple fronts. And I could speak to two of the larger ones that we've faced. One is more inherently with the processes, the technological challenges of creating a product from scratch right, on how do we first identify the exact composition of the product. And even if we can identify it, if we're looking at thousands of different components, how do we know which ones are actually critical? Uh, And then besides that, even if we find out which ones are critical, how do we then source those things from nature? For us, we spent the, the best part of the first two years of our company's life just doing hard R&D on, on these beverages, on these products to try to and find out exactly what they're made out of, what kind of map of components and ingredients are accessible to us. And then besides that, there's the regulatory challenge, just the legal challenge. Okay, so if we're saying that wine and spirits are product, then what we're making is a wine and a spirit. But if we consider wine and spirit as a process, then it gets a little bit more tricky because we're obviously creating these products with an entirely new process. And so how do you then go to the regulators and convince them that the products that we make can fall into the existing definition of what a whiskey is and of what a wine is and of what other spirit, a particular spirit is. And so those two fronts, I would say, are some of the more prominent areas of challenge for us. Um, Mm-hmm. So on the R&D front and on the regulatory front, a scale up of itself, once you solve the formulation issue, tends to be relatively straightforward. Got it. I'm, I'm wondering, you have my wheels turning. So I imagine there's two business development opportunities here, right? You could, the one path is owning the entire stack. So you create these products and then the world comes to know and love the Endless West product suite. The other approach it feels, and I don't know if they're mutually exclusive, but as you're identifying all these 
common denominators, the building blocks of our favorite beverages, you're building this proprietary data set, this map of everything out in the world that can help other companies build sustainable versions of the products that the world has come to know and love. So I'm curious, in your point of view, in the driver's seat, how are you thinking about commercialization longer term? Both of the above, one of the above, maybe I missed one, but I would love to hear your thoughts there. Sure. It's all of the above. Because the the tech is ubiquitous and applicable to many different uh, beverages, it's also then applicable to many different kind of business models. Yes, we were generating a lot of proprietary data that we then use to create our own products, but we've also recently launched Blank Collective. So this is our our brand or the avenue whereby we we act as a a sort of a one-stop shop for commercial, as a commercial alcohol producer that we then work with different companies, whether that's uh, manufacturers or brands to help them realize new new beverages in, 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 in alcohol. So whether that's new beverages, bulk spirits, and other offerings. We use the technology for our own products, but also to help other players realize some of their dreams. That's super interesting. I'm blinking on the name of the company. I wish I, I could recall, but it's another company that in many ways it re- resembles how you're thinking about the opportunity. They built or created kind of this suite of different SKUs. They did chocolate chip cookies. They did snack bars. They did cereals to prove that their this like data set of plant-based alts as inputs were viable. And the founder just went into just did this press presser, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, saying that their long-term goal is the Coca-Cola the Coca-Cola model, where kind of the vast majority of their annual revenue actually comes from licensing these formulations. So that seems so interesting to me. Y'all must be pumped about the wide breadth of opportunity available to you as you're pioneering kind of this new umbrella within a centuries-old industry. Exactly. For us, it's how do we pick the right avenues to pursue first and to devote the limited resources that we have into. So where do we create the most value and where can we provide the most value, whether that's for the consumers or for other businesses, which I guess is always the the lifelong question for any new company. Absolutely. I'm wondering, in this first mile, when you show the world how tasty your products are, what are the what are some of the playbooks that you and the team have res, referenced recycled? You look at Impossible. They said, "Hey, this won't be widely available initially. We're going to do limited runs. They're going to be in the best restaurants around the world. In this way, we can really control how the experience is first delivered. We can educate servers on how to talk about Impossible. Has any of that thinking translated into?" how you and the theme team think about this first mile? Yeah, I would say for us, it ties back onto you know, the initial moment of how the whole idea and the project started. So we're all about accessibility, uh, making the products that we create available for everybody. And so to the extent that we want to create an experience, a controlled experience for the beverage, we think that's helpful to some extent. 
right? Like we've done events where we help anyone who comes to, to our booth. This is obviously pre-COVID, create their own whiskey, for example, using different blends and flavors and components that we have on a smaller, easier scale on a regular kind of tasting table. And we've partnered with a lot of different, you know, retailers and bars as well to design different cocktail menus. How do we, how do you best express the flavor of our products when it's in a cocktail and when consuming it by itself. And so one of the things we're really proud of that we think is we don't traditionally find, for example, in a, in a cocktail is using our whiskey glyph in a green tea cocktail, where a whiskey in a green tea cocktail, and it turns out to be both refreshing and just like a, a fresh twist and kick to what a whiskey cocktail could be. That's honestly sounds so delicious. I, I'm curious. You know, when you think about defining some of the clear advantages of this approach versus the incumbent industry, I'd love to just do a very specific highlight, a spark notes for dummies around some of the costs inherent to traditional spirits making. I know we briefly touched on it, but I want to hit home on how much better Endless West could be for the industry at large. So what are those kind of two or three talking points that you and the team are most proud of as it pertains to sustainability? Yeah, so I would say there's three main areas, water use, land use, CO2 emissions. Right? With the process that we have, again, with an internal study that we did for Glyph, for example, we're looking at 94% less water use in the process. Because in, in the way we make the product, we use exactly how much water we need and then just a little bit of overage. And this is obviously different from traditional making traditional ways of making whiskey, where first you have to grow the grain, you have to water the crop, then you have to process the crop, and then you have to ferment, you have to distill, then you have to mature. We're also talking about a lot less land use, like 92% less land. We're a lot more efficient and effective with our use of space because everything is made to exactly to spec. Like we use only exactly what we need. And so there's less space usage, both on the production of these ingredients, the processing of these ingredients, and the final use manufacturing-wise for the creation of these products. And then also less CO2 use from a raw materials point of view, less CO2 emissions. And so these three main factors, less water, less land, less CO2, is true for the products that we make, whether they're whiskeys or Jamelo, which is our wine. And we believe it's going to be true for the future products we make as well. So this is an inherent advantage that we have to the process uh, that we employ that we've created from scratch to make these products. And I think it's one of the more sustainable and long lasting benefits that we hope we can we can show to the world and we hope that it persists because we think there's, there's obviously a movement now where everyone's more environmentally conscious and everyone's playing their part, doing their part to, to make the world a lot cleaner and a lot greener. And we think we're playing a small part in this, that no stone should be left unturned in this endeavor. And if and we hope that we can continue to show to everyone that you can create these products much more sustainably with the same quality, if not a 
better quality uh, using our process. And in doing so, we hope that the industry as a whole will then kind of get lifted all together. We, make, we all make better products. So everybody enjoys a better experience for these products. And these products just also happen to be a lot better for, for the environment and for the earth. And so I, we think it's a win-win situation for everybody. Absolutely. Something that keeps ringing true to me, when you think about all the different opportunities in consumer, alcohol in many ways is one of the most interesting because it is one of the few that's been around since the beginning of kind of civilization, really. And so there's no doubt that demand for different alcoholic products will continue for many centuries. And so if we want to be able to deliver the best products that people love, also being cognizant of the kind of full all-in costs of making these, this is a no-brainer. There will be a future, I imagine, where the endless West approach is the industry approach. So that just must be so like, come on, that's so cool to be behind that. Oh, man. We're, I got two more questions on the bookends of this. And these are more fun questions that are not Endless West specific. But given how many, how much depth you've seen in all things consumer, building a company from nothing to something, I'm sure you have a bunch of peers in the industry that are working on cool things. So my first question for you is, Outside of Endless West, what is another project, experiment, early stage startup that you find to be super fascinating? And it doesn't have to be a commercial venture. It could be something that's even before commercialization. But any of the above that you'd love to give a shout out to would be so interested to, to to hear what your thoughts are. I, I know some newish companies, but I think most of them are still in stealth. So I don't think I can speak much about them, but I, I always give my praise to, and, and you could argue they're not really a startup anymore, to Impossible Foods. I think a lot of the companies in the space now in food and technology have taken a lot of inspiration from them and in some, in many ways have followed their playbook and they're one of the first pioneers and so with a lot of the new food tech companies that have sprung up you can see shadows of impossible in in, in a lot of them uh-huh. right so i don't have any particular startup in mind right now that i can mm-hmm. speak to at the moment but i would say just in general that kind of this movement behind food and technology is just one really fascinating to to see start and to very motivating uh, to know that other people in the space care about the same issues that that we do and that everyone's working towards the same goal even though everyone's working on different products I love that my last question for you is my signature bookends question it's around this notion of the idea graveyard my question for you is, what's one idea that you'd love to work on if you had the time to do, but for now, is just rotting away in your idea graveyard? 
That's a good question. I just had a few ideas in my idea graveyard that I just buried recently because they weren't really viable. Let's see. Let's see. I think there's an opportunity here to in the food technology space to pursue different products for different regions. And so you've seen with a lot of the and more prominent food technology startups that they're working on more commodity products, beef, pork, uh, fish, you name it. And there's certainly some luxury counterparts within uh, luxury items within those categories. But if you go, you know, internationally to different markets, like what really are the staple foods for them? And is there a chance to pursue something much more impactful depending on on where you land whether that's like africa or in asia like certainly in the u.s it's it feels as if the major categories and major staples of food are being tackled from a technology point of view but i think there's opportunity in developing countries and international um, markets where this hasn't been addressed to the same extent. And I don't think it's because it's not a worthwhile endeavor. I think <clears throat> the people in those countries would also be open to, to these ideas because it's the world is becoming more global. The same issues that people face in regards to the environment are pretty universal. It's a great idea. If you look at all the other comps, you know, Stripe bought, what is it, Paystack, which is Stripe for Africa. And it's funny, when you operate in... The states, everything from how you design the product, how you speak to the world is designed for the American consumer. And you bring up a great point. I think as developing nations want and deserve the same things that developed nations consumers have been used to for years, there's a massive kind of, I think, widely overlooked opportunity set where you just copy paste the thesis and then you modify accordingly for kind of the international geo. It's a great train of thought. Um, I think we'll see a lot more of that in the coming years. So mm-hmm. I'm excited for it. Martin, this has been one of the most interesting combos I've had on the show. What I'd love to do is roll out the red carpet. Are there any final call to actions, hiring needs, anything that you want to leave with our listeners, the floor is yours. I'd just like to say, if you're interested in trying our products, check out our website, endlesswest.com. We have new releases on our whiskey line. You can try our molecular sake, which is pretty interesting to us and for a lot of people when they try the product on how reminiscent it is of some you know, my favorite sake is from Japan. And as well as our original product, which is the inspiration behind our work, which is the, the Moscato wine, which is the first product that we had developed. So, you know, a lot of our, if you're interested in working with us to some capacity, again, a lot of those things you can find on our website. And if there's anything else, feel free to reach out to us. We're always open for collaboration and for conversation and for to point you in the direction of a tasting. Thank you for I having me. My, my fiance is in, uh, behind me. I have uh, the Jamello wine up on my screen and she's giving me the thumbs awesome. up. So we're definitely going to try that. Martin, congrats to you and the team on all of your early success. Thank you for 
Um, bearing with us on this round two, early technical difficulties. You are the best. Thank you for coming on the no show. Problem. And we'll have to do a round two pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. It would be good once people can travel again. We can do a tasting or something similar. I'd be interested to see your, your, your calls and your reaction. Say less. I will gladly accept yes now in advance. Anyways, Martin, you're the best, man. Take care. Thanks, Peter. All right. Hey there, you made it to the outro. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you're new here, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, thank you so much. We're actively casting for new guests on our show. So if you have a rockstar founder or company in mind that's working on something cool, message me on Instagram at Peter A. Levin or email us, hello at ingothands.us. Thank you so much again and look forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.